Last week I started off with a real depressing opening line, and I'll do the same today. We live in a very dark, depraved, destitute, derelict world. We really do. And all I have to do is watch the news, pick up the paper. If anybody reads the paper anymore, I don't know. Do whatever you do, and it's just, it's just darkness and gloom everywhere, everywhere you go. And it's because the world is a mess. It's a complete mess. It's getting messier, and the general overall trend of the world only indicates it's going to get even messier than it already is. Now that I've totally depressed you, I want to say it doesn't have to be that way in pockets. This is going to be the big trend, but it doesn't have to be that way in your life, in your little world, in the people you deal with. The only solution to this mess is God and his word. God and his word. And the only way people will get God, and the only way people will get God's word, is if you tell them. Romans 10, 14 to 15 says, the only way people hear God's message is when we tell them. I said last week, the church is God's plan A. We are God's plan A to get this message out. I have a friend named Bill Hybels says the church is the hope of the world. With all due respect, I don't agree with that. I believe Jesus Christ is the hope of the world. But I will say this. I believe the church is the primary messenger of the hope of the world, Jesus Christ. And the world has, by and large, ignored God and his word. And I think the reason why is because the church has done a reasonably good job, though not as good as it could, of sharing the message verbally. But we also have to share the message with our life. Some things are better caught than taught. Some things are better felt than taught. And if we share the love of God and show the love of God, I think we'll get people's attention, and then God can do a great work. The New Testament book of Acts is 28 consecutive chapters of this premise, that the church is the vehicle to get God's message out. And that's the series that we're in and that we began last week. And the book of Acts covers the chronology of the whole New Testament. And uh, most of the New Testament was written during the time frame of the book of Acts. In fact, as you take out your Lakeshore notes, what I did for you, and this is my uh, common ground side, if you like this, if you flip over your notes and you see that, if you like that, then you would love common ground midweek service at Lakeshore Community Church. Because what I've done for you, I want a little common ground on you. I want a little deep on you. What I did, it's good for you. What I did was I gave you a chart that at the very top has a timeline, all the way from 4 B.C., about when Christ was born, all the way to 96 A.D., when the last book of the New Testament, the book of Revelation, was written. There's the timeline. If you look at the key verse, Acts 1.8, we covered this last time. Acts 1.8 is the key verse that outlines the whole book of Acts. There you see Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. Then on the top, the uttermost part, you see Paul's different journeys, the activity of Paul. Paul, after today, next time, our third and final installment of Acts, Paul takes over and dominates the book of Acts. Then you'll see how the book of Acts in different chapters syncs up with different time frames. And when each and every book of the New Testament is listed there, and uh, this all came courtesy of one of my late professors. Uh, he, he, he went for a jog, came back, and died. Dr. Harold Honer, great man of God. 
Isn't this a pretty cool chart? I mean, I just thought I'd give it to you. And um, yeah, thank God for Dr. Harold Honer, one of the most brilliant New Testament scholars. I had the privilege of taking two classes from a man where they really hard. But with the dates of Acts and all that, it, it just will help you grow and get a little deeper. So there's a little common ground. If you like that, and then in January, when we start our series in the book of Ephesians, January 10th, you're not going to like it. You're going to love it. Now, last week, we began looking at some of the key stories in the book of Acts to learn how we here at Lakeshore can impact our world, particularly our community. Now, open to Acts chapter 8, verse 1. Last week, we looked at the first seven chapters, and we saw six different ways we can impact our community by way of review. The first way is when we yield our right of way, when we live a spirit-filled life. We talked about that. The second is how we embrace the idea of strength in numbers. When we hang tight with other believers, when we hang tight with other believers, we grow stronger. When we grow stronger, we've got something to give away. You cannot give what you do not have. Third, we learn the principle of open hands. Give what you have to extend God's love. Don't worry about what you don't have. Just think about what you have and give it away. Don't be like the rest of the world. You just cling to everything. It's mine, it's mine, it's mine. No, it's not. If you're a Christian, it's not yours anymore. It's God's. It always was God's, but now you're ready to acknowledge it. Fourth, thanks for sharing. Express your faith courageously. No CIA Christians. No Secret Service Christians. Share your faith. Then we said the fifth way we can impact our community last week is knee mail. Make prayer the center of your life. And then finally, it's all under control. Stay faithful to God to the very end. We ended that incredible story of Stephen's faithfulness while he's being pelted with stones. He drops to his knees, not to assume the posture of prayer. He drops to his knees because he's struggling to breathe and live. And he says, I'll do anything for Jesus Christ. And I look at some Christians and I look at them and I say, I wish you'd do something for Jesus Christ. And it's a sad picture. But now I want to talk about five more ways as we move from Jerusalem and Judea in chapter 1 to 7 to chapters 8 to 12. And actually we'll dip into a little bit of chapter 13. And we're going to see a change in scenery, a change in geography. Acts 8.1. On that day... What day? Well, you read the context. The day that Stephen was stoned and martyred for his faith. A great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem. And by the way, for the next 200 years, all the church experienced was massive persecution. First 200 years of the church, it was like a rose. It was crushed. But a rose always gives off its best scent when it's crushed. And the church was crushed, but it gave off its best scent. And all except the apostles were scattered. So for some reason, the apostles stayed in Jerusalem, but everything else was scattered where? In Judea and Samaria. Remember Acts 1.8? You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes to you, and you'll be in Jerusalem, the capital city. And that's where we focused last time. Now it's Judea and Samaria. You see the expansion. God used a bad thing, persecution of the church, to do a good thing, to fulfill Acts 1.8 and expand the message of God beyond the city of Jerusalem to other parts of the world. By the way, isn't that exactly how God works? Isn't God a master at getting bad things that happen to us and doing the flip on it and making it good? It's a love about God. God is the master of getting the bad 
and turning it into good. He Romans 8.28s it where it says, we know that for those who love God and those who are called according to his purpose, God causes all things to fit together for good. So in this next section of Acts, we're going to see how God can use us to impact our community and our country, our Judea and Samaria, if you will. And I want to look at five stories and draw out five more principles on how to impact our community and our country. Here's the first. The first is this, clear it up. Help confused people understand Christ. I want you to know something, even in Roman Catholic Rochester, most people do not have an accurate view of Jesus Christ in Rochester, New York. Do you know this? People will say this, he's a good moral role model. That's about it. Others will say, he's a great teacher. That's about it. Some say, he was a made-up person, never even existed. Some say, he was a great political revolutionary. Some say, he was not God. Some say, Jesus is my homie. And, uh, really? Playing a little fast and loose there, maybe? But people need to know who Jesus Christ is. He is 100% God, 100% man, the only Son of God, conceived of a virgin, the only Savior of the world, who was sent by the Father as the only remedy for the sin that exists in every one of our hearts by nature and by choice, and he is the only remedy, the only alternative to a destiny of hell being replaced with the glory of eternal life in heaven. He is the only one. And that message would be rejected by 90% of Rochester, New York. You know it, and I know it. And not only that, when we get people straight on who Jesus is, and we help them believe in Jesus Christ in their head, and receive Jesus Christ in their heart, and by the way, both have to happen. You know, it's not pick one then we have to help them grow. Then we have to help them grow. Maddening, maddening, maddening that a church would just say, yeah, yeah, you're a Christian. You're all right. You're going to heaven, so that's it. You figure it out. I don't believe in that. And we need to clear it up for others. That's exactly what the apostle Philip did with a man from Ethiopia who is referred to in the story as the Ethiopian eunuch, which means... He had a male functional problem. We'll just leave it at that. You can do your own Google research on eunuch. Okay, but let's just jump right in. Acts chapter 8, verse, starting at verse 30. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. That was customary when you're reading the Bible to read the Bible out loud. And apparently the Ethiopian was reading it, and he's reading the Old Testament prophet Isaiah. Do you understand what you're reading, Philip asked. How can I, he said. Unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him uh, on his chariot. So the guy probably had some money. I mean, the average Joe or Jeremiah or whoever just did not have a chariot. You know what I mean? So got, the guy had some bucks. The eunuch was reading this passage of Scripture, and it comes from, if you want to write down, Isaiah 53, 7 to 8. He's reading from Isaiah, what we know is Isaiah 53, 7 to 8. He reads this. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, 
and as a lamb before the shearer is silent. So he did not open his mouth. In humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from earth. The eunuch asked Philip, tell me please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? Now you might say, that's kind of weird. How could he be talking about himself if he says he, he, he? Well, it's God speaking through the prophet. So it could be Isaiah, God speaking through him about Isaiah, or is it someone else? And Philip must have beamed from ear to ear. He says, boy, this guy really wants to know the truth. He says, tell me. The eunuch, the eunuch asked Philip, tell me, who's he speaking about? Then Philip began with that very passage of Scripture and told him the good news about Jesus Christ. He said, the one that was led like a sheep to a slaughter, that's Jesus when he died on the cross. When he remained silent before his shearer, Jesus didn't fight his crucifixion. He did not open his mouth. Tell me, are you the Son of God or not? Jesus remained silent. And who can speak of his descendants? Jesus never married, didn't have kids, and he was crucified. For his life was taken from earth. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water after Philip had told him the good news of Jesus Christ. And the eunuch said, look, here is water. Why shouldn't I be baptized? By the way, you know what that is? That's a pastor's dream. Right? It's exactly what that is. It's a pastor's dream. And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Again, the dude had some money. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down in the water, and Philip baptized him. He not only, Philip not only helped the Ethiopian eunuch become a Christian, but think of baptism this way. He helped him grow as a Christian. Baptism is one of the first things everyone who becomes a Christian is called by God to do. Philip helped him see that. Now, if we want to impact our community and our country, the church has to speak clearly about who Jesus is. Sadly, it doesn't happen. I'm ashamed to tell you, but it's the truth. I've sat in meetings in the town of Greece. I've sat in meetings in Rochester, New York. I've sat in meetings all over the country, and I've heard pastors and pastorettes speak damnable heresies about who Jesus is. I am not kidding you. And if you know me, there comes a time when I just say enough is enough. I've spoken up at these meetings. And you know what I feel like? I feel like a lonely... I've been kicked in the shins. I've been... People just sit there and go, I can't believe you say that. And say nothing in the meeting. Oh, and then they come up to me afterward and they go, yeah, yeah, I agree with you. Like, where were you a half hour ago? I'm just telling you. Watch CNN. Watch Fox News. And watch some of the big-name pastors. Is Jesus the only way? I don't know, Larry. What do you think about this issue? Well, you know, I really... It's a shame. Why are we ashamed of Jesus? Tell me. Please, give me one logical reason why we're ashamed of him. I don't get it. We've had people come to Lakeshore, 
that didn't think God existed, and maybe some of you are there, or were part of a cult group, and maybe some of you are there, or who didn't know that Jesus was God, and we help them see the truth, help them believe the truth, watch them grow, and some strong Christians in this church, when they first came through this door or the door of one of the other 11 places we held services before we moved here, didn't know Jesus Christ from that chair. And today, they're some of our greatest leaders. We're all called to do this individually, to help people see the real Jesus Christ. C.S. Lewis said there's only three options for who Jesus is, a lunatic, a liar, or a lord. Either he was crazy. You know, what he, that's the explanation. All that stuff he said, lunatic. Bah, wrong answer. But he's a liar. He just told a bunch of lies. Said he was God, but he really wasn't. Bah, wrong answer. The real answer, he is the Lord. And to be Lord, he has to be God and man and the only Savior. And we got to nail that message down. The other stuff is important. I believe in it, but it's secondary. We've got we've to stick the landing on who Jesus is. We have to. And if you think I'm getting amped up, it's because I am. Because I'm very, very sick and tired of sitting in crap meetings. And I'm done with it. I don't care if everybody hates me. I just say, get in line. There's a long line already for that. I don't care. On that issue, I don't care. I really don't. And then when we help them understand who Jesus is, then we've got to help them grow. Then we've got to help them grow. And we can do that here, if they will let us. That's how we impact a community. That's how we impact a country. Okay, second thing is what I would call the idea of the transformer. No God is in the life change business. God's number one priority is to glorify himself. That sounds pretty greedy, doesn't it? God, God's chief aim is to glorify himself. No, it's not. Because by glorifying himself, then we see the true God. After glorifying himself, God's second priority in life is life change. Life change, to change your life, to change my life, to change every life that will yield to his. He specializes in taking the most broken of lives and making them whole and healthy and strong. I'm an example of that, and many of you are too. And one of the great life change stories, oh, by the way, we also need to tell people that their life can change too. One of the reasons why you need to know how to share your faith wisely is you need to tell people how God changed your life. And when I tell people about how to become a Christian, I try to, if they let me, if the opportunity presents itself, I try to tell them how God changed me because that's like a real life. And I don't glorify my sin, but, I, but if I have to, I tell them about the, the details of my past sin and how God changed me because that gives somebody hope. And one of the most famous conversion stories in the Bible is the story of the Apostle Paul. He was actually born with the name Saul. He was born in Tarsus, so he's known as Saul of Tarsus. Remember Paul from last week? Paul Saul from last week? He was the one who stood by in active approval as Stephen was fighting for his life and killed. Paul sat by in active approval of this. I mean, Paul was a Christian hater. 
He hated Christianity, thinking it was a false version of Judaism, not seeing it as the fulfillment of Judaism, which is what Christianity really is. Well, God reveals himself as the life transformer to Saul and his conversion. Acts 9, 1-6. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He, he, can't, he couldn't stand Christians. And again, it wasn't a personal thing. It was because he was zealous in defending his faith, even though he didn't understand how the Christian faith was the fulfillment of his Old Testament faith. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, which was northeast of Jerusalem, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, by the way, one of the rare places where Christianity was called this term, the way, uh, we don't know why, maybe the way of Christ or whatever, whether man or woman, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. So Paul's going to round up more Christians and persecute them. Just persecute them. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. Talk about blinded by the light. That's exactly what happened. He's blinded by the light. And he falls down. Now, the light may be Jesus Christ. The light may be the glory of Christ. The Bible says the only way a person can be an apostle is they had to have been an eyewitness of Jesus Christ. This lends me to believe that this light was actually Jesus Christ. People today say, I'm an apostle this, apostle that. And with all due respect, you may be a functional apostle, but the only way you get the office of apostle, you better be an eyewitness of Jesus Christ. And the New Testament says, whom having not seen, you love. So I don't get the full title of that, and I understand different polities, but to be an, the office of an apostle, you had to see Jesus. I think Paul saw Jesus right there. It flashed around him, he fell to the ground, and he heard a voice say to him, now this we know is Jesus speaking, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Let's stop right there. You just said, Vince, that Saul was part of the persecution of the church. Correct? Then why did Jesus say, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Tell you why. Because the church is Jesus Christ's wife. You mess with his wife, you mess with him. The Bible says when you're married, the two will become one flesh. Jesus Christ is one with the church. That's why we are called Christians in Christ. You mess with my wife, you mess with me. Jesus says, You persecute my church, you persecute me. Why do you persecute me? And one of the classic statements in the whole Bible, who are you, Lord? And I always think, like, you think? Of course it is, Saul. And then, if there's any doubt, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the city, and you'll be told what you must do. And the, tr and the Bible says that Paul was blinded. Now this is fascinating. Paul was spiritually blind. God made him physically blind so he would no longer be spiritually blind. And then when he was no longer spiritually blind, later he opened up his eyes so he'd no longer be physically blind. Got it? Okay. You see? See what I'm saying? Okay. <laughs> Paul was blinded by the light, but he finally was able to see Jesus Christ. He went from one of the most aggressive Christian haters recorded in the Bible to, in my humble opinion, 
the greatest Christian to ever live. You say Jesus was. Well, Jesus isn't a Christian. He's Christ. He's not of Christ. He is Christ. I think Paul was the greatest Christian to ever live. The story of non-Christian Saul transforming into the great Christian Paul is an example for us that no one is too far from the grace of God. You have a friend, you have a spouse, you have a child, and they're wayward, and you go, how are they ever going to come back? I'm just here to tell you, no one is too far from the grace of God. You with me? You feel me? No one is too far from the grace of God. No one is too far away. No one can say, I'm too far gone. Some of you were, quote unquote, too far gone a few years ago. No one is too far gone. And do not miss the unmistakable message that if God convert, can convert Saul, he can convert your husband who hates God. Your wife, who's indifferent. Your child, who's on drugs or wayward or rebellious of some kind of way. Or some other precious friend. Or some other relationship. Nobody is too far from the grace of God. If you miss anything, if you, if you get anything, get that. It's a hopeful thing. It's a very, very hopeful thing. At Lakeshore, we have to believe that God is in the life change business. When I stop believing that, when you stop believing that, it's all over for this church. It's just a matter of time. We'll drift a little bit and then we'll die. When we stop believing that God doesn't change lives, it's all over. It's all over. We have to realize God can use this little church here to change people. We also have to realize that God is the great transformer. I'm not. I don't want to sound arrogant, and this really isn't an arrogant thing, but people come up to me a lot at the end of the service. You know, I've been coming, and you changed my life. I said, whoa, whoa, whoa. I don't want a lightning bolt upside my head. <laughs> God changed your life. And, uh, well, he used you. I'll accept that mantle. Thank you. No lightning bolts. And, uh, and some of you you know, or that, and, and, and I appreciate what you're trying to say. But I, don't, I, I always tell people, if I had that ability, you think I'd still be in the state I'm in today? <laughs> I just don't. I'm a mess, you're a mess, Jesus can help. And God can do that for anyone. So let's believe in God's transforming, life-changing power and extend it to others if we do. Then we can impact our community, then we can impact our country. Here's a third way to impact them. It's what I call the principle of flex fuel. Stay wide open to obey God's big asks. Stay flexible, wide open. Say, God, whatever you ask, I'll do. There's an old saying, a ship in the harbor is safe. But that is not what ships are built for. A ship in the harbor is safe, but that's not what a ship's built for. Ships are made for the rough, risky seas, and followers of Jesus Christ are made for doing some rough, risky things for God. How? God will ask all of us to do some big things for him. And in fact, if you've been a Christian for a while, I guarantee God is asking you or has asked you to do some big things for him. He's looking for people who will obey him, he, that will obey God even if he asks a lot of us, that will obey God even if he stretches us, that will obey God even if he calls us to change for his namesake. 
We see this in an interesting story in Acts chapter 10. This may be the world record longest passage, consecutive passage for one point in the Lakeshore Note history. We'll get through it. It's a very fascinating story. It begins, I'm going to give you the background before we jump into the text. When a man from Italy named Cornelius, okay, and I may call him Corny, Cornelius or Corny believed in God. He was really devout, he was really sincere, but he didn't get the Jesus part. By the way, that was me for 22 years. I was really devout about God, I I didn't fully get the Jesus part. And I'm Italian. So Cornelius is, is in this state, and one day he prays to God, again, because he's devout. He doesn't quite know how to pray, but, he, but he's sincere. And the Bible says, if you seek God, you'll find him. If you seek him with all your heart, and God saw Cornelius' heart and said, boy, you're really wanting to seek me. And God speaks to him one day. He says, Cornelius, you're very sincere. I'm going I, I, to ask you to send some men to a city of Joppa to get Peter one of my apostles, and Peter's going to explain to you what you need to know about me. So what does Cornelius do? He obeys God's big ask. (laughs) Be careful. (laughs) Get the K in there. He obeys God's big ask. (laughs) He does. I'll, I'll absolutely do it. He gets some men, and he sends them off to Peter. Meanwhile, God's, you know, because it takes some time to get there, God's doing a work in Peter. And that's where I want to jump into the text. About noon the following day, as they, who's they? The Corny's men. They're on their journey and approaching the city. Peter went up on the roof to pray. And he probably went up on the roof. In those houses, in those days, a house just had a flat roof. And uh, he just went up on the roof probably just to get away from the commotion so that he can pray in privacy and, and without distraction. He becomes hungry. Again, it's noon, so it's lunchtime. And he wanted something to eat. And while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. So he was in some kind of state where God was getting ready to reveal something to him. He saw heaven opened and something like a, a white large, a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. So you can you imagine that? A hand at each of the four corners and it's just coming right down. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles of the earth and birds of the air. Then a voice told him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Now he's hungry, so God used his felt need of hunger and he dropped, he says, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. By the way, that's a polite way of saying no. He was not being disrespectful. He's saying, surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. Leviticus 11. If you read Leviticus chapter 11 in the Old Testament, it is an outline of all those animals which God called unclean and said, you're not to eat of these kind. You can eat certain kind, but they're unclean animals. They're animals that God forbade Jewish people from eating. So Peter is simply being faithful to what? Leviticus 11. Faithful to what? The Old Testament. But where are we now? We're in the New Testament. So the voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure or unclean that God has made clean. Now what does that mean? He's saying in the Old Testament, 
These animals were ceremonial uncle ceremonially unclean. Do not eat them. We are now in the New Testament. And that was a shadow of something bigger. Jesus Christ. Colossians 2 says the Old Testament was a shadow of things to come, but the substance of that shadow is Jesus Christ. So he says in the New Testament, you can eat them. Do you get an analogy now? You go, now I'm really confused. So is this a lunch story? Or is this a story about a man seeking God? The answer is yes. Because he's drawing an analogy, he's saying, what you see with these animals being unclean, they're now clean. So when this non-Jewish Italian dude comes to you, don't do what Jewish people would do in the Old Testament. Say, get away from me, you're not a Jew, you're unclean. He's saying, when this Gentile comes to you, view him as clean. You see that? He uses the vision of the four corners to help Peter understand his vision for how you treat non-Jewish people. Why? Because we're not in the Old Testament anymore. We're in the New Testament, where Jesus opened up the good news to people beyond um, the scope of Judaism. This happened three times, and immediately a sheep was taken back to heaven. Three times, Peter says, I'm not going to do it. By the way, that was the third time that Peter said no to God three times. Three times in the New Testament, Peter said no to God three times. It never worked out good in any of the conditions. It really didn't. So what does Peter do? He obeys God's big ask. He does. He obeys it too. Even though it stretched his faith. It rocked. Can you imagine you grow up all your life believing this religiously and God says, no more. It was right. It was accurate. Not in the New Testament. And Peter says, I will obey your big ask. His world was rocked. He says, you know what? It, 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 it messes with my categories. But if you say it, God, and I know it's from you and you've got to make sure of that, I'm doing it. While Peter was uh, wondering about the meaning of the vision, Peter didn't get this. The men sent by Cornelius found out where Simon's house was and stopped at the gate. They called out asking if Simon, who was known as Peter, was staying there. While Peter was still thinking about the vision, the spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you. So get up and go downstairs. Do not hesitate. Go with them, for I have sent them. Peter was starting to get, he's, he said, I'm wondering what this means. Now the people come, and he's going, I think God's going to show me. Peter went down and said to the men, I'm the one you're looking for. Why have you come? The men replied, we have come from Cornelius, the centurion, which meant he was over 600 people, he was over 100 uh, people in the Roman uh, uh, system, and then it's um, believed that he was over 600 people in the Italian army. He is a righteous and God-fearing man who is respected by all the Jewish people. A holy angel told him to have you come to his house so that he could hear what you have to say. Then Peter said, now I know what the vision means. Now I know what God was saying. Then Peter invited the men into his house to be guests. And then ten verses later, Peter shows up in Caesarea. So in other words, the men from Cornelius went to Joppa. They got together. They went from Joppa, Peter and these men, all the way back to Cornelius and Caesarea. And now we are all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. That's Cornelius saying, we're wide open. Tell us how to believe right. Peter does, and they believe. It's a great, 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 great story of God's work. But in the natural, it does not happen unless what? Peter obeys God's big ask. Cornelius obeys God's big ask. C.S. Lewis says, aim at heaven 
and you'll get earth thrown in. Aim at earth, you get neither. And God's saying, turn your vision off the lame, temporal, stupid things of this life and focus on heaven. And think about great things and big asks from God and do them. When's the last time you did something risky for God Almighty? He did something risky for you 2,000 years ago. When's the last time you did something risky for God? Big. Our church will never impact our world unless we take risks for God and obey his big asks for us. We may not always perfectly know if it's God's will. I thought this something was God's will and we did it and I've come to realize I thought it was, but it wasn't. But here's what, you cannot be afraid to make mistakes. You can't be afraid to fail. As long as you try your best to screen what you think God wants you to do biblically, you just do it. And most of the time, I think you'll be right. For 17 and a half years at Lakeshore, we've taken big risks for God and have tried to obey him. Big risks. It's in the DNA of our church. It was a big risk for our family to come here. We didn't know squat about ministry. We had no members, no ministry experience, no money, nothing except the call of God. It was a big risk to start a church for, for, that was a pretty unique place uh, for people who had given up on church and not on God. And we took a dog beating for it. We still get mischaracterized for what we are. I, I, I don't care anymore. A big risk of building this building and then an even bigger risk to add on to it and have the over 40,000 square feet of what we have. A big risk of welcoming people who, some, who, who other churches wouldn't easily welcome. And God has honored it all. But here's the key. We can't ever stop taking risks. This fall has been a walk the plank, big ask, obey God, the tailgate party. That, that thing did not happen easily. The sports series. That thing did not happen easily. And, and it did not happen cheaply. Feed my starving children. Making waves. And all of you next Sunday will have an opportunity to make a commitment to making waves. It's a big ask. It's a big ask from God. If we always strive to obey God's big ask, then we'll impact the community. Here's a fourth way. The principle of survivor. Endure hardship and expect God to work. Four times in the New Testament, the Bible says, endure hardship. Not avoid hardship. Not hardship will never come into your life. Endure it. But you know what I'm glad? I'm glad the Bible doesn't say enjoy hardship. Because I don't. God just says, endure it. Jesus even said, blessed are those who endure persecution, a form of hardship for my name's sake. So if your Christian life is easy and hardship-free, I'm going to suggest to you, you ask some serious questions about your faith. Because it can't be that way all the time. If it is that way all the time, I'm concerned for you. If you aren't getting your butt kicked from time to time, because you know Jesus Christ, I'm concerned for you. The good news is that God will work in the lives of those who trust Him through hardship. Hardship will either make you bitter, butter, or better. Either make you bitter, I hate God, I, I. butter, you just melt right under it, or better. The only way you get better is when you endure hardship. A classic example, again, involves Peter in Acts 12, 1-7. King Herod, 
who was part Jewish, arrested some people who belonged to the church. He did this to politically please his Jewish constituency, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. Yes, that is James of one of the 12 apostles. Yes, that is James, Peter, James, and John, one of Jesus' three top disciples. Remember we said last week, 11 of the 12 disciples were killed for their faith. Only John just died of natural causes. When he saw that this pleased the Jews, he went further. He gets Peter, whips him in prison. Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. They expected God to work, the power of prayer. The night before Herod was going to bring Peter to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains. And centuries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared and a light shone in the cell. There's that light again. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up. And the chains fell off Peter's wrists. Answered a prayer. Without a doubt, the Lord sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were anticipating. God did a great work. And it happened when Peter endured hardship and the, the other Christians endured hardship in prayer for Peter. Every problem we face, every challenge we pray about, every evil we fight, every critic we forgive, every trial we endure, God will use us to impact Rochester and our community. I'm telling you. So let's all trust God through hardship. I heard the story of a very a veteran, successful pastor who was coming to the end of his time, and a young pastor who was struggling to find success. And he says, uh, the young guy says to the veteran guy, hey, can I have lunch with you? They do. The young guy says to the veteran pastor, he goes, you know, you're really, really successful, really successful, and I'm not. And I wonder if you can help me with some secrets. And the pastor said, sure. So tell me, what are your secrets? The pastor looked at him, he goes, well, he goes, you don't expect God to work in your life and in your ministry in a great way like he did in mine, did he? And he goes, oh, no, 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 oh, no, no, of course not. Veteran pastors, that's, it. that's exactly your problem. You know why? It's not always true. But here's something that's generally true. God typically does what you expect them to do. And when you have an expector that's way down here, God says, I'll meet that. Yeah. I'll give you an ounce. Yeah, I'll give you that. And then when your expector is about one gallon, God goes, I'll fill that up too. Imagine if our expector is 100 gallons. God typically does what we expect him to. And if you want to endure hardship, stop focusing, stop crying, put away the baby bottle and the pacifier and endure it. And then trust God to do a great thing in it because God's custom sending trials into your life to help you grow where you need to grow. And if we all do that, that's how we'll impact the community. One final one as we wrap up. And that's this, answer the call. Find your place in the plan of God. Find your place in the plan of God. If you are a Christian, you are in the plan of God. By the way, if you're not a Christian, you're in a plan of God in a, in a different kind of way. God says, answer the call. If we're going to impact Rochester in our country, we all have to find our place in God's plan. We have to answer God's call to serve. We have to answer God's call to love. We've got to answer God's call to follow. We've got to answer God's call to obey. We've got to answer God's call to grow. We've got to answer God's call to simply be faithful. And we see this in the life of Barnabas and Saul. I kind of violated, I said I'd end the chapter 12, but, but the story I felt would tease for, for our next week and our final installment. 
13, 2-3. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. And Paul and Barnabas did exactly what God said. And they went. They answered the call. We all have to be willing to answer God's call. I don't know what... We all have a general similar call, but then because of our gifts and our personality, we all have unique calls too. We're all generally called to share our faith, but we're all uniquely called in how we would share it. We need to have the attitude that says, God, wherever you lead me, I will follow. Whatever you feed me, I will swallow. Do you know you're calling to serve God in this church? Do you know you're calling to serve God in his will? Do you know you're calling to serve God in this earth? It's important. I can't give you seven steps to that. I can give you principles, but you need to find it. And the only way you find God's will is when you try something in your life. And if you do, we'll impact Rochester. God wants to call every one of us to service. Don't waste your life doing things. Spend your life doing the thing that God wants. There you have it. Those are five more ways we can impact Rochester. So let's just bow our heads as we wrap up. And let's just think about these five points. First of all, clearing it up. Do you help people understand who Jesus Christ is? Let me ask you this. Do you fully understand who Jesus Christ is? Do you believe he's the only payment for sin in the world? He is. Do you believe that Jesus Christ is the only Savior? Do you believe that he died for your sins? Not just somebody's sins, not just everybody's sins, but also your individual sins. And do you receive it in your life by faith alone? Say, Jesus, I'm sorry for my sin. I believe you're the only Savior from sin. Come into my life. Transform me. Help me to live for you. And if you say that with faith alone, then you become a Christian. Clear it up for yourself and then clear it up for others. Transformer. Do you still believe God's in the life change business? What is it in your life that you want God to change? He can change it. And when he changes you, then you can change others. How about flex fuel? Are you still wide open to God? Have you put God on a little box? J.B. Phillips wrote a book a number of years ago, Your God is Too Small. Don't let your God be that small. How about enduring hardship and expecting God? Are you going through a tough time right now? Endure it and trust God to do something great in it. It beats the alternative. And then finally, answer the call. God, give us all an ability to find our place in your plan. And thank you, Lord, that we can grow and impact the community like the apostles did in the book of Acts. In Jesus' name, amen.